As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hi there, this is The Athletic Football Podcast Weekend Preview and we're focusing on the Premier League's five fixtures in this Match Week 21. Hi there, I'm Adam Leventhal. Welcome to the show and welcome John McKenzie. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm ready for another one. It's good to have you uh, back. We'll be going through the predictions and uh, see how you fared uh, in a few moments' time. Luke Bosher is back in the studio. How are you? Delighted to be here, Adam, uh, as always. That's good. And Jay Harris is back as well. How are you? Yeah, oh, good, thanks. You? I'm good. You looking forward to seeing uh, Ivan Tony back? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a long time, and I think I, I think you'll hit the ground running. So, well, we co-authored a piece this week. Didn't we, we did, yeah, we about teamed the up. The return, the return of uh, Ivan Tony. If you want to check that out, so this is the second half of the winter break. So we do have five games once again. The fixture formation is two-two-one from Saturday through until Monday. Let's run you through the fixtures. Saturday, twelve thirty. Arsenal in fourth, five points off the top, up against Crystal Palace in 14th, who are five points above the drop zone. Saturday, 5.30 kickoff. It is Brentford in 16th, three points above the relegation zone. But as we mentioned, Ivan Tony is back. They're up against Forest, who are just a point and a place above them in 15th. On Sunday at two o'clock, it is the bottom club, Sheffield United, eight points from safety now against West Ham, who quite remarkably are sixth in the table. Sunday, 4.30, it is one of the form sides of the Premier League. Bournemouth up against the leaders, Liverpool, who are two points clear of Manchester City. And then the Monday night football is Brighton in eighth against Wolves in 11th. Now, we did our predictions last week, and I just wanted to run you through how everyone fared. You'll remember it was uh, Nick, Jacob and John were in the studio. Jacob did very well indeed. Manchester United against Tottenham. He got correct as far as a score draw is concerned. He got the Chelsea home win against Fulham. And he predicted that it was going to be Burnley 1, Luton 1. Got a bit, bit lucky with that one though, didn't he? Very lucky. As did Luton. Very, very lucky. Just a quick straw poll on that, on that incident. That was a foul. Was it, was it not? From Adebayo on, on Trafford? I think so. 
Yeah, he knew what he was doing. He did know what he was doing, didn't he? And that didn't, didn't seem to be taken into, into consideration. What do you think? Yeah, Rose? I agree. I think goalkeepers get a lot of protection, too much yeah. in general. But I think on this time, it, it was the wrong decision. Yeah, it's a foul. It was, wasn't it? It was very strange. I, I, I was very confused by that. I was on air at the time. I was watching. I was like, what is going on? Um, going back to the predictions, Newcastle against Manchester City. Uh, John, Nick as well, said City would score three in an away win. At one point, I thought my prediction of Newcastle 2, Manchester City 1 was going to come off and it would have been the, the most genius prediction, but obviously it didn't come off. No one predicted the draw uh, between Everton and Villa. We will be doing more predictions on this episode uh, and we will start our preview with the vitality at the vitality. So Sunday, 4.30, it is Bournemouth hosting Liverpool and this should be a good game. Bournemouth still in really good form despite losing against Spurs last time out. In fact, they've picked up the most points of any team over the past eight games. And that's after they failed to win in their first nine games, which included six defeats. It's quite remarkable. And John, we have to start with you. Have you moved your poster of Andoni Iraola? above your bed now where John Stones used to be. Yeah, I've got one on, one on each side, yeah. <laughs> you do love him though, don't you? And I guess you're really glad that this season has, has evolved rather than, you know, hitting a, a dead end so early. Yeah, I was a bit worried for a bit, you know, yeah. because I'd sort of set my store out saying that he was going to be good um, and the starting position wasn't great. Um, like you say, really bad for the first nine games. But uh, through that whole time, I, I was consistently saying the reason why this isn't working is because the pressing triggers are off. You can see that he, he, he likes to engage a high press, has players backing up from deep, uh, and you have to jump at the right times. If you don't, you leave players free. And uh, in the Premier League, if you leave free men like that in the, in the build-up, teams will just run through you. And that was ha happening over and over and over again. But so the, why, did it, why, did, why was it not on point to start off with? Because I think that when you're playing that kind of system, so much of it is... We, we often talk about pressing triggers, right? And it makes it sound as though when you're pressing, all you need to do is be like, oh, have they, if they've got the ball and they pass it backwards, then we, you know, we move forward a bit. Or if the ball goes this way, then we all move. But actually, I think when it comes to a system like Andoni Areola's um, pressing approach, it's a, it's a lot more intuitive. So you're not just reading a, a, a sort of one-to-one -one map where you're like, okay, the ball's been passed, so this is my trigger to go. A lot of players will have maybe a couple, maybe even three players that are going to be they're going to be responsible for, and their responsibility is going to change depending on what's happening elsewhere. So there's a, a huge amount that you have to keep in your head at any one time. And if you, like I said, if you get the timing wrong, then then it all falls to pieces. But there's a good piece by Tom Harris actually in the Athletic. He uses a few screenshots in his article to show uh, a, a, a few examples against Arsenal where. You can see the players unsure about whether or not they should go, whether or not they should move and, and, and pass the player on. And as soon as you have any kind of uncertainty like that in your pressing system at this level, you, you just get punished for it. And now what, you, what we're starting to see is that the timing is much better. Those triggers are being read properly. And there's been a bit of, a, I suppose, a structural change as well. So uh, Ryan Christie has, has been moved back into the double pivot. He was playing as a 10. Uh, he's dropped back. And I think that's made a huge amount of difference because often that player has to be the one who's doing a huge amount of decision making for the rest of the team behind him so if he goes then then everyone else will follow him and he's an exceptional uh, presser and an exceptional reader of the press so I think moving him uh, around has actually changed things as well. One of the central people in that Bournemouth side at the moment is Dominic Solanke in great form 12 goals in all uh, eight in his last nine games and he's up against the side 
that sold him. Um, Luke, what have you noticed about how he has played this season in comparison with last season? When you see him now, do you think, well, yeah, he is a, he's, the, he's the real deal, which maybe you didn't think about in the Premier League, maybe in the Championship, but in the Premier League previously? Yeah, I think those were always the questions over Solanke is that he'd, he'd proven he can do it at a lower level and making the step up last year. Bournemouth were quite conservative under Gary O'Neill. I think Tom Harris mentions in that article about how deep they were and that, that worked for them. That was a system that worked for them. They stayed in the Premier League quite comfortably in the end, but I think that was to the detriment of Solanke's kind of goal-scoring ability. And I think this season, because Iriola's football is so much more front foot, they just naturally create more chances. And that means, you know, your goal scorer who started all your games is going to get more chances. And I think Solanke's... You know, right the way, you know, he was at Chelsea before Liverpool. Mm. He's always been known as a very good finisher and someone who, you know, could use his strength to kind of keep the ball. But, you know, Bournemouth under O'Neill didn't really use that, whereas they do use that under Iriola. And I think the other key thing this season, especially, you know, in that sort of 4-2-3-1 that John was kind of talking about, I think the supporting cast at Bournemouth is a lot better. You know, someone like Antoine Semenyo looks really, really good. Mm. You know, Justin Cliver, who was, you know, a bit of a lost soul before with, you know, stints in France and Italy, looks, you know, really, really accomplished playing in that kind of number 10 role. And they've got other players like Dango Uatara and they've signed Luis Sinistera as well. And, you know, in the last couple of games, I think Alex Scott has looked unbelievable. Mm. And when you have talented players behind you, it, it, I think it makes, you know, the job of a striker that much easier. So it, it's kind of all coming together for Solanke at the perfect time. It was interesting hearing Eddie Howe actually being quite open about the fact that he really likes Dominic Solanke. Obviously, he signed him when uh, he was the, the Bournemouth manager. He's obviously now at Newcastle and he said that he wouldn't be able to afford him however much he would he would like to sign him. What level do you think Solanke can, can reach? Can he get back up to the Chelsea or Liverpool well, maybe not Chelsea at the moment, but but Liverpool level, you know, being a Champions League striker? don't want to put too much rain on his parade because I've been really impressed by him this season as well. And I remember and when Brentford drew 2 all with Bournemouth, I think the thing that stood out the most for me, which always helps when you see people in the flesh, is just his combination of speed, technical ability and strength. And that's really rare for a striker to have all three of them. Obviously, he scored 12 goals this season, but he'd never surpassed more than six in the Premier League before. So yes, I think he's a fantastic talent, but don't want us to get too carried away thinking that, okay, all of a sudden he deserves to be bracketed as a world-class striker. I still think he's got to show a little bit more before that. So an England call-up too, too soon? I think on form, he deserves at least a look-in in March. But I think he'd have to continue on his current trajectory to get into the European yeah. Championship squad in the summer. I've been watching a lot of Premier League strikers because I'm doing a, a bit of a longer-term project looking at shot timing, so how long it takes players to get shots away. Uh, I've been really impressed with Dominic Solanke because I've gone through and watched all of his open-play shots that aren't headers this season. And it, it's a really good opportunity to see what strikers are like when you watch all of their chances in, in fairly quick succession. But the thing that I think, I think maybe impressed me most about him is that he has like an incredible diversity of ways of generating shots and chances, which makes him... I think, a dangerous prospect for, for any big club. For example, Darwin Nunes is a, a player who I would say has an incredible athletic upside, but he, he's very one-dimensional in terms of the sorts of shots he wants. So he, he will often, you know, the two goals he scored against Newcastle where pulls it back across the keeper from, from the right-hand side. The other thing he does is he drifts in from the left, cuts inside and then tries to hit the top corner. Those are the main ways that he is trying to generate goals. But if you watch Solanke's goals this season, mm. they've just come from an incredible array of different areas, different types of shots, 
he, he can score with his head as well. Um, so I think with that, on top of the fact that he's a very good link-up player, and also the fact that he's now playing in a system with Andoni Areola, where he's expected to be able to press well, I think all of that makes him quite a nice prospect for a team who's maybe looking for a striker where they think actually we might be able to get an elite striker for not the most expensive that you might expect to pay for that kind of striker. So I'm kind of interested to see what happens to him in the, in the summer in particular. I think, though, it's it's an interesting one, you know, looking at the summer because Solanke signed a new deal, I think, uh, the, right at the beginning of this season until 2027. So, you know, coming into the summer, he'll still have three years left on his contract, which... I think puts Bournemouth in a hugely advantageous position because I think with those kind of players, you're normally looking at maybe two years is when you want to sell because, you know, any later than that and their value starts depreciating. So it kind of depends how much of a fuss he kicks up. But, you know, Bournemouth could charge, you know, I think the figure with the sort of Newcastle report that was then later, you know, quietened down was about 60, 70 million. And that, you know, that only that leaves about, you know, four or five Premier League clubs that could do that. So it's potentially quite a small market for him. It could be that, you know, if Iriola is building something and Bournemouth end up, you know, as they are kind of on pace to finish in the top half, he might stay for another year. And then you're looking at summer 2025 when he'd be 27, I think, and still probably with, you know, five years left at his prime before he moves on. Let's move the conversation on to, on to Liverpool. They can go five points clear at the top. Obviously, the focus going into this game will be will be that, you know, they're going for the title. But obviously, it is their first Premier League game without Mo Salah, who's at uh, AFCON. In this, the simplest of terms, how do they fill the, the void left by Salah, do you think? Well, obviously, they've got so many different attacking options. Obviously, nobody's on the, the level of quality that Salah is. Um, but obviously, they can slot in Diogo Jota, Cody Gakpo, uh, Diaz, Nunez... There's more than enough variety within that team to, to find different ways to score, even, even if their best player is missing. Who do you think they will miss more, John? Because obviously they're, they're missing Salah, they're missing Trent Alexander-Arnold. Enzo is at the Asia Cup as well with, with Japan. Who do you think in that Liverpool side has the most impact on how they play, their dynamic yeah, it's interesting because obviously with Mo Salah, you've got a player who's he's pure goals and that makes a big difference. But at the moment, it feels as though Liverpool definitely are structuring their play around Trent Alexander-Arnold uh, for obvious reasons as well, because um, he's he's giving a huge amount of uh, uh, production from in, in terms of the pro- uh, the progressive passing that he can do. And it, it does feel as though with them moving him inside a little bit more and changing the tactics up, that it's all being done for the benefit of Trent Alexander-Arnold. So if you don't have Trent Alexander-Arnold, then... The changes that are going to come from it, I think, are, are changes that probably would have benefited Mohamed Salah. I think in this system, Salah has to do a lot more work in the wide areas because Alexander Arnold's moved inside, so the channel opens up. You either have one of your central midfielders moving out there, or Salah starts drops deep. There's, I, I could show you plenty of clips this season of Mohamed Salah in possession, almost looking like a, a fullback because he's had to drop in so far, and so that takes him away from goal. So, in many respects, I feel as though missing Trent Alexander Arnold sort of. It raises questions about what they're going to be doing in terms of the, the tactical approach. Do they go back to what they were doing before? Do they just simply play without an inverting fullback? Which I think personally would suit Liverpool better anyway, for the reasons that we mentioned. For example, it gets Salah in, it, higher, closer to the goal. If you don't have Salah, um, I suppose you, you then have a, a sort of double knock-on, which is the system doesn't quite fit the players that you've got, even if you have very good players. Um, and if you switch that system up, you've not got Salah there to benefit from it either. So you, you always miss Salah, whatever 
system you're playing. But I think that they will miss Trent Alexander-Arnold precisely because the whole system is set up for him to actually help them move the ball down the field. And if they can't get the ball into those front, uh, the, those attacking players, then yeah, they're going to be in trouble. Obviously, the you know the narrative about them going five points clear of Manchester City is important in this game, and people will be thinking almost that. Maybe it's just going to come down to when Liverpool and Manchester City face each other in a, in a couple of months' time. But what's your feeling on on this Liverpool side, Luke? Do you do you see them as title winners, or do you think that they're just sort of a placeholder for once Manchester City really gather pace? Yeah, I think City are you know with De Bruyne coming back, obviously that's all the talk that you know the classic under Pep Guardiola second half of the season they absolutely blitz everyone. But I think. Liverpool from you know, especially their last couple of games they're doing that thing that kind of would be champions often do which is win games without playing you know that well or as well as they could do and you know we kind of saw that in the you know, it wasn't the Premier League but that 2-0 FA Cup win against mm. Arsenal particularly when Klopp changed things at half time they looked way better with Nunez on the left and Diaz on the right and that's kind of you know goes back to those without Salah solutions that I think Klopp is very good at getting and that's why I think Trent as John said will be an even bigger miss but I think I've been really impressed by Liverpool this whole season they've kind of they've gone under the radar a little bit because obviously Tottenham started the season so well and you know Arsenal started well and have kind of carried off a little bit and then City have been a bit up and down and they've never they never feels like they've been the sort of main storyline in this Premier League season which I think has allowed them to kind of you know kind of go a bit unnoticed and they've dealt with so many injury problems this season particularly in defence, you know, Andy Robertson, then Simicast going down, Trent now, you know, Matip's out for the season, but they have still managed to, you know, put themselves in a great position to to look into the second half of the season as, as title contenders. And I think it will, I imagine they're going to fight Man City right to the wire. I think they've evolved a lot this season. Like the Trent Alexander-Arnold inversion that we everyone talks about, when they were first doing that, they were trying to be like Man City to a degree. They wanted Trent Alexander-Arnold almost playing as a midfielder and essentially what's happened is it, as the season's gone on they've realised he's not particularly well suited to that role and so he's almost playing as like a in, a, in, a, in what people now call a quarterback role where he just sits sits deep, picks the ball up fa- outside of the opposition block facing down the play and because he's such a good ball striker, probably the best ball striker in the world, he can, once he's in that sort of position you're in a huge amount of problem as a, as a team. So I think that what Liverpool maybe started off not quite so good and are now much better than they were. And so, that again, that sort of gives you a funny sense of exactly how good this Liverpool team are. Much like Bournemouth. So Liverpool, top of the table on 45 points. Bournemouth, 12th uh, with 25 points. But they are two of the form teams in the league. Uh, let's get your predictions. Jay? 2-1 Liverpool. 2-1 to Liverpool. I have Luke. exactly the same on my card. On your card? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like it if you prepared a card. And John? <laughs> Do I go for the Bournemouth upset? It's not. I mean, it's not very likely, but yeah, go on. I'll say Bournemouth are going to win 2-1. 2-1? Yeah, go on. Okay, and I will go for a Liverpool 3-1 win. Next, we are off to the Emirates. You didn't mention your predictions from last week. No, because I didn't get any right. <laughs> I didn't get you any mentioned right. one that you nearly got right. I nearly got right. No, actually, I, actually, the only one I got right was predicting a draw in the game between Burnley and Luton. Okay, now we will go off to the Emirates. (laughs) (laughs) Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Saturday lunchtime, it is Arsenal against Crystal Palace. Arsenal have lost four of their last seven in all competitions. And that includes only one win. They've lost their last three in all competitions, scoring only one goal in the process. They've been in Dubai for some warm weather training for the last week or so. So hopefully for them and their fans, it will be the perfect reset, Jay. Are you looking a little bit worried, a bit concerned? A little bit concerned. I think um, the two games, you know, over Christmas, New Year against West Ham and Fulham where they lost, I think they're a little bit concerning just because... I think by the 55th minute, the 60th minute of both games, I just knew that Arsenal weren't going to get mm. anything out of them. What well, they because were... they'd started so strongly and wasted chances or that it was just wasn't... Just very laboured in pos- possession, mm. felt very predictable when you've got Saka and Odegaard. And sometimes it does work, kind of like cutting in from the right-hand side and kind of whipping crosses into the box to Nketiah and Jesus. It's not the most effective tactic because you wouldn't call either of those two the most dominant strikers aerially. So that was definitely a little bit of a concern. You know, I've spoken about this on the, the Handbrake Off Arsenal podcast that we do, but Saka and Martinelli had a really, really high output last season. And for Saka, that was probably in trend with how he's been over the last three or four seasons, whereas Martinelli was a little bit more of an outlier. So the worry is, was that just an exceptional season for Martinelli and teams have kind of worked out how to stop him from getting on the ball in better positions now. And so it feels like Arteta's just trying to grasp what this what his best Arsenal eleven is at the moment. Because at the moment, it just feels like Saka's being marked out of games. Martinelli's being marked out of games. Obviously, this Havertz experiment, there's times where it, it kind of works and he scored some big goals. And then there's times where he doesn't look completely comfortable. Obviously, Gabriel Jesus and Nketiah are not the most potent strikers. So, yeah, a little bit worried. And, you know, if they don't get a, get a win from this game, I think you can pretty much count them out of the, the title race at this point. John, from your point of view, obviously, we've spoken about their goal-scoring issues and we've spoken about the fact that maybe it's a psychological thing I suppose if you get away get a bit of sun on your back try and just sort of go and uh, you know eat some food from Salt Bay well yeah, yeah of course I'm not a meat eater so it wasn't really something that I got into Arteta looked very into he it he looked really <laughs> absolutely he was all in wasn't he so it's it's these sort of moments in a season that sometimes, not necessarily, they don't always have to involve Salt Bay. They, they just <laughs> need to involve a little bit of a breather. It may well be that Arsenal start as they did against Liverpool, like a train, and one of those early chances goes in and they catch fire again. Do you, do you get that feeling or do you think that that would, be, that would be a false economy almost and they need to make some changes? I think calling it psychological is smart because it makes it sound as though the issues aren't structural. Yeah. 
uh, and it gives them a chance to, you know, as you said, get away and, and, and try and reset. But I, I do think that a lot of the problems that Jay's been talking about there, they're not psychological problems. They Definitely there have been finishing issues, um, which, which are always going to impact teams in these sorts of situations. But the problem is, is that they have to nail all of their shots because they're creating so few dangerous ones that uh, when, when you go through those spells where you're not finishing at the level that you might want to, it has a much bigger impact on your overall approach. So I, that, for me, Arsenal have a lot of structural problems that, that we, we, we can talk about in, in, in terms of, a lot of people say predictable, but it's, I think Arsenal struggle to build up and as a result of that, they move players deeper in the field to try and help move the ball down the field, which means when they do move the ball down the field, not only do they have fewer players forward, but they also, it takes them longer to arrive in the, in the opposition um, box. And I think last season, we talked about Martinelli and Saka having good seasons. In part, I think that was because they were so dynamic. They were able to get forward quite quickly. The, uh, how many times last season did we see Zinchenko, for example, receive the ball in the middle, carry it forward, and, and you know, you've got the opposition backpedalling, you've got lots of space to attack, whereas this season it feels like we barely see that happening ever. And so and Arsenal are constantly trying to break down a low block and um, I, I mentioned before that I was, I'm doing some research on strikers timings and the amount of uh, touches it takes for them to get shots away I, I had a look at Kai Havertz and Gabriel Jesus and compared them to Erling Haaland which is probably an unfair comparison <laughs> because uh, the what I'm finding out from this research is that Erling Haaland is a freak. He's just he's 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 about twenty five percent quicker getting shots away than pretty much all Premier League strikers. But when we look at particularly Gabriel Jesus, he takes on average two point eight touches per shot, which is way more than even Kai Havertz, who's at two touches per shot. And Haaland is, and is ha- what one point seven five. So. Right. Um, yeah, so it just, takes an extra touch. Jesus. Yeah, he's basically yeah, and th- and that's in part because he plays like a, a false nine role, right? Where he's dropping out, which means when he receives the ball, often he's further away from the goal, which is fine. You can you can play that role well, but I think what we're starting to find, and I think what's so interesting about Man City going for Erling Haaland is that when you have a box presence and you realise that actually you're much more likely to score if you can get shots away early because the opposition can't really set, is that if you have one of those players who's really elite you can get shots away, you, you're going to generate a load of, of goals, even if those situations aren't necessarily, you would consider them great goal-scoring situations. So I think that's the, the lesson that I, I certainly learned from watching Erling Haaland last season, is that he just it, it's incredible how quick he receives the ball, gets it into a position where he can swing his leg at it and then, and then hits it all, all at once. And I think that's, that's the position that Arsenal is struggling with right now. And it's a confidence thing as well, isn't it? To, to take those shots early, you need to sort of be in the groove. Yeah. And none of their strikers are at, at the moment. The Kai Havertz chance against Liverpool in the FA yeah. Cup. Was it FA Cup? Or, yeah. yeah. Um, where, where he receives the ball from Erdogan. He could take a first-time shot. It's not maybe the easiest shot. He ends up taking a touch and ends up having four touches before getting the ball away. Yeah, I think maybe shot timing is a, a place for Arsenal to have a look at how they could be a bit, a bit more dangerous. I was just quickly going to say, I think Arsenal fans are desperate to see more of Emil Smith-Rowe as well. You know, a couple of seasons ago, I think when Arteta first took over, it was Smith-Rowe and, and Saka who basically carried the team. And They've obviously, got their song together. It's a of bit course. weird now. Has Saka got a song by himself now? Yeah. He has? Yeah, Starboy. Fine. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I wonder but, if Emil Smith-Rowe feels a bit bad that he's sort of been biffed out of this joint well, song. Well, have. obviously he's had quite a few injury issues yeah, yeah, over yeah. the last couple of seasons. But I think what frustrates Arsenal fans is that he'll come on... 10 minutes left of a game when Arsenal are drawing or losing and he's kind of expected to mm. kind of pull a, a rabbit out of a hat. I think what all Arsenal fans want to see is him given a chance. If Havertz is not producing or if it's somebody else who's not producing, then just give Smith-Rowe a good 60, 70 minutes, two, three games in a row and see if he can kind of get that match sharpness back up and see if he can kind of contribute because 
he's a very dynamic and clever player when he gets the opportunity to. I want to talk about Crystal Palace. And before doing the podcast, I read a, a really good piece from Matt Woosnam, who is our reporter for Palace for The Athletic, using sort of phrases like the club are in a bit of a holding pattern at the moment. There's a lot of lethargy. He was describing about uh, Roy Hodgson obviously getting criticism from the fans and also that Hodgson had said, or maybe we can sort of, he didn't use these words because I know historically from his time at Watford, he doesn't like it, but we can maybe take the handbrake off in the FA Cup (laughs) and go for it because we're not really having to worry too much about relegation this season. Now they're out of the FA Cup, 14th, only five points above the drop zone, two wins out of their last 15, including eight defeats. They're in a they're in a bad place at the moment, aren't they, Luke? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, losing to Everton in the manner that they did, you know, missing quite a few chances, you know, it was a game that could have gone either way. You know, as Matt said in that article, it basically deads their season. You know, yeah. if you look at the possibility of more teams below them getting points deductions and, you know, already the bottom three, many people have, you know, that, that as it is, Sheffield United, Luton, Burnley, you know, going down, maybe irrespective of those points deductions, Palace you know, touch wood if you're a Palace fan, look to be safe with, you know, 19, 20 games left of the season. So, you know, it's something that like, when I look at the Palace squad, I'm kind of reminded of something that, you know, NFL fans and NFL teams talk about, which is like a a club's or a team's Super Bowl window. And obviously I don't mean like Palace are going to be challenging for the title or top four, but I mean, you know, in NFL terms, that's kind of when your squad, you know, everything's like kind of, perfect at the right time you've got you know all the right players on you know both sides of the ball and maybe you've got a great coach great quarterback and I look at the Palace squad and I'm I'm so impressed by it you know Czech Decore, Eze, Olise, Gehi, Anderson you know even you look in goal I think Sam Johnson, Dean Henderson that's that's quality you know Premier, two quality Premier League players but I'm a big fan of Roy Hodgson and I think he's proven himself to be a great manager over many years but Making him essentially interim manager since last March just kind of says that we're not that bothered about this season because it's like you're not building anything. No, I don't think anyone expects Roy Hodgson to be Palace manager beyond the end of this season. And maybe he may not even last that long if if their current trend continues. So you've almost wasted a year of possible development for these players. And how many times has Eze and Elise and Gehi been linked to other bigger clubs since they've joined Palace? And, you know, even Ducore, who joined summer 2022, was linked to Liverpool quite heavily in the summer. It's like Palace have kind of missed their opportunity. Had they appointed maybe a slightly more ambitious manager? You know, you look at Bournemouth, who appointed Andoni Iraola. I'm sure if Iraola had been offered the Palace job, you know, they're a bigger club. They've got more money, more resources. They have a, they had a, on paper, a stronger squad at the start of the season, more better raw resources to work with. It's fair, I think, for Palace fans to be like, well, we could have had that. I think this season as well, with the fact that the t- three teams that came up, I think most people have them pipped to, to go down. So it's, it's a season where you're almost guaranteed to stay up as long as you don't do something completely stupid. And obviously, the sacking Roy Hodgson and bringing someone in who doesn't work might look as as though you're doing something really stupid but I think that's the con- that's the conditions we're in now right that teams are some teams are too worried to just push the boat out a little bit on uh, trying a new manager because they're so worried about going down and be- because of the amount of money that the Premier and League Palace gives historically you, right? are have been worried you know prior to Roy Hodgson coming in it was Vieira. Frank de Boer wasn't it Frank de Boer before yeah. Hodgson oh, yeah, yeah. and then obviously Vieira and then he he comes back so <laughs> they are the sort of the archetypal yeah, sure. 
worry bead sort of uh, club. And John, there is so much focus on Eze on the whole, but in particular in this game, because Elise is is missing once again with with an injury. They really need him in what is going to be his 100th Premier League appearance for, for Crystal Palace to be on form. And I suppose with Arsenal's confidence not great, he could be a, a match winner, couldn't you? You can, you can picture it almost. You can see in that corner at the Emirates, the Crystal Palace fans celebrating and him running off to them in a, in a shock sort of Crystal Palace victory. Yeah, I think for any team that is in the bottom half of the table perennially, you need your difference makers. And, and, and that can be the difference between you going deep in a cup or, or staying up in a season. And he's he's definitely that for them. Um, a player who's who's been fantastic, I think, throughout his career, but has, has shown the ability to, you know, he can play in the midfield areas, he can play in the wide areas, he's creative. He, he offers you out of possession stuff that you want from a player in the middle as well. It's just a really, really important, a, a important sort of profile of player for them. OK, we're going for our predictions now. Jay, Arsenal fan, come on, what? What's happening? 2-1 Arsenal. Oh, I thought you were going to be a bit more overwhelmingly positive. 2-1. Okay, yeah, but, that, but they've got, they seem to concede a lot of goals this mm-hmm. season. Although they've got a very good defence, they don't seem to keep that many clean sheets. Okay. Luke? 2-0 Arsenal. 2-0. John? Yeah, I'm not going to be uh, overly positive for, for Palace like I was for Bournemouth, I'm afraid. But yeah, we'll say Let's say 1-0. I think the, the first fixture of, of the season when they played against each other, they... Uh, Arsenal relied on a bit of a dubious penalty call, so maybe it'll be tight. Maybe Palace will sit deep and cause Arsenal those problems that, that they hate. They're just sit, having to break down low blocks, etc. So 1-0, right? 1-0, yeah, to okay, Arsenal. You're all wrong. It's going to be 4-0 to Arsenal. OK, let's go through the rest of the games now. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. So... To the other three games in the Premier League. And the big one is Brentford against Nottingham Forest. Ivan Tony's return. Full podcast on this feed all about it. This is massive for Brentford. It's it's the moment everyone's been waiting for, is it not? Yeah, no, you've built, you've built it up. You've built up the hype well. Um, first and foremost, Tony scored 20 goals in the Premier League last season. Only Haaland and Kane had more. So it's obviously massive excitement to have a player of that quality back. But maybe more importantly, Brentford are just in a, a real bad run of form at the moment. They've lost five league games in a row, um, got knocked out of the FA Cup by Wolves on Tuesday night in a replay. So I think over the course of those two games, they took the lead three times and somehow got dumped. And Bumo's injured, this is at AFCON, Sharda's injured. There's a whole load of other injuries and, and personnel issues. So I think Brentford as a club and the fan base are just hoping that Tony can rediscover the form that he showed last season, which led to an England call-up straight away. 
Let's talk about Nottingham Forest. Um, obviously been a turbulent week for them with their punishment from the Premier League due to profit and sustainability rules. There may well be a points deduction incoming. What's your feeling on it, Luke? Obviously, you're part of our news team here at The Athletic. It's It's been quite a dominant story this week, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, given what happened to Everton earlier this season and the fact that Everton have also been charged, you know, we're, we're, even though Everton have been given a points deduction, it, we're still in quite uncharted territory in terms of the Premier League. You know, that, that points deduction for Everton for a financial breach was the first of its kind in the Premier League. Uh, and now Forest have been done again and, and Everton have been done again. And Forest believe they have these mitigating circumstances with the fact that they delayed the potential, so or the, the actual sale of Brennan Johnson, you know, beyond the PSR window in order to get more money for him. And the fact that they did get more money for him, if they had sold him for that much when they initially could have, they'd be fine. That's their kind of argument. And it's a, it's, make it feels, of that what you will. I yeah. don't know. I feel like I feel like if, if you're of a forest persuasion, you're probably like, oh, well, yeah, that's that's fine. That makes sense. But then, you know, the other side to the coin is that these dates are there. They're hard mm. and fast. They didn't have enough money at the correct time. So they have to get done. And we'll see what happens on the pitch, whether that has an impact. We kind of saw with Everton when they got done earlier this season, that kind of galvanised them a bit. I think, you know, they went on a pretty good run under Daesh, which has kind of dipped in the last few weeks. But Forrest under Nuno, they've been doing going quite well in, on the pitch, you know, kind of ignoring the FA Cup weirdness against uh, Blackpool, it was, where they were taken to a replay and then scraped through. You know, they, they lost to Bournemouth, impressive Bournemouth, but, you know, Forrest had Willy Bolly sent off early on. They only just lost. Then they beat Newcastle, you know, thanks to Chris Wood, and then they beat Man United. So they're going well. Sorry, you said Chris Wood and I just drifted off because, um, <laughs> not in a rude way, but because of the um, the circumstances they signed him under, where it was, if he was named in the matchday squad three times, they'd pay, was it £15 million and, and he'd go on 100k a week, 100K a week wages, <laughs> which for a club in the bottom half of the table, paying any players of 100000 a week, to me is just... It kind of sums up why they're in the position that they're in. But then was Chris Wood worth it for that Newcastle game alone? Well, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's the counter-argument. <laughs> At least, you know, they Probably can say he, he did something. Let's get your predictions on this one. Brentford against Forrest. How many is come Ivan to Tony going to score? Come on. Come to me last. Oh, right. Okay, fine. <laughs> John? I'm going to say 2-1 Brentford. A much-needed Philip for Brentford. Luke? 1-1. Me? Tony to score. Tony to score. Tony's going to score, isn't he? Um, I think the score is going to be 2-3. Forrest are going to win 3-2. Jay? I think it's going to be 2-2. 2-2. Okay, we shall see. Right, let's move on to Sheffield United against West Ham. Bad week for West Ham, going out of the FA Cup against Bristol City. They're sixth in the Premier League. West Ham, which I think for people who haven't necessarily been dialed in, they might have lost track over Christmas, the FA Cup games have been coming, but they are the, the closest challengers to the top five. They, they don't necessarily feel that, or am I doing them an injustice? No, no, you're not. If you look at their underlying numbers, they don't look particularly good. Of course. If you break down the underlying numbers <laughs> further by game state, so in terms of whether or not they're winning, losing or drawing, I looked at this this morning just out of interest because I was like, how are they so low on the expected goal difference table right at the bottom? They're sort of putting up like relegation level numbers. They're very good when they're even in games. So when the score is when they're when they're drawing, they're they're pretty good. They're putting up more expected goals than they're conceding. In almost every other game state, they're rubbish. 
So what I think what's been happening is that they've been going ahead because they've been playing okay. They've, they, as we know, David Moyes has them very well coached to, to be able to hit teams on the break. And then they're managing to hold out uh, from those from those point onwards. If they concede a goal, it doesn't look like they're, gonna, they're coming back. But I think what's been happening is just everything's fallen for them this season in terms of getting the goals when they needed to uh, and then being able to hang on long enough for it to, to work out. So really interesting proposition. But I suppose that's the way they, they sort of play under, under Moyes. It's... it's very good counter-attacking football where they've got real difference makers in the in in the front in their front line. Whether or not they they'll still be there and thereabouts, as they say at the end of the season, I think depends on how many more games they can go into and get the first goal. Sheffield United look down pretty much, don't they? I mean, they're, they're eight points from safety. Uh, Chris Wilder's return hasn't really caught light. I mean, I suppose it's all relative because they weren't doing particularly well before he arrived. They did pick up slightly. They got a draw and they got a win against Brentford. But on the whole, it's six Premier League games. They've lost four, drawn one. That win against Brentford, could they could they repeat it against West Ham potentially? Was there anything in particular that they did in that game that was sort of like a, a magic, magic dart? I mean, I think it was James McAtee scores a really good goal, but otherwise it was a pretty non-eventful game. I do think Sheffield United probably outperformed Brentford but I wasn't didn't come away blown away I think obviously the the big kick in the teeth was when they lost at home to Luton Town Sheffield United because they're the games that if they a couple of spawny goals as well wasn't it I it was, wasn't I forgot it? about this spawny weird phrase that you use. <laughs> you're, you're familiar with spawny. I'm, aren't you? I'm familiar. I would never use it. <laughs> That's fine. It's particularly but, in public like this. No, I, yeah. <laughs> well, but they they got they got lucky, didn't they, Luton in that game with a couple of deflect, deflections and things. I'm not I'm not speaking bad of Luton. It could have been any team. Luton were lucky in that game, but obviously Sheffield United were still two one up at one point and maybe didn't manage the game particularly well. Yeah, it looks like they're they're not going to stay up in the league this season. But obviously, it's the important caveat that they lost their two best players in the summer, Sanderberg and Ilman and Jai. So it felt like Heckingbottom was working with his hands tied behind his back at the start of the season. And you know, I, I think they just signed somebody recently. I can't think who it is off the top of my head. Have they got Ben Bereton Diaz on loan? Yeah. Maybe he'll come come in and be a sensation, but. They've just not got that level of investment and that level of quality that other Premier League sides have. So I, I can't see them doing anything this weekend either. OK, so having said that prediction, Jay? I'm going to go 1-0 West Ham. 1-0 West Ham. Luke? Yeah, I've gone 0-1 too. 0-1. John? Yeah, interesting that you guys are going low scoring, but I guess it is a game that, you know, it's the sort of team that West Ham could struggle against if they're not going to allow them any space. But yeah, I think West Ham are going to win. So I'll say 2-0 West Ham. Uh, West Ham. A couple of spawny goals. <laughs> <laughs> Bo- Bowen's like a doubt and then they yeah, don't yeah. have kudos, right? So, or Kaketa. Or what? Oh, oh, I might have to change. Yeah. Like, scrap everything I just said. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Can I change? Can I go back to 1-0? Yeah, yeah. Are you going to change? You can. Uh, it's not committed to the official um, judging panel as yet. Do one, it quickly. 1-1 one, 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 one. Okay, good. 1-1. One, one. The score is actually going to be 2-1 <laughs> to Sheffield. United. You're so contrary. <laughs> well, I have to... I, no, I, I believe in these. I believe in them. Last game. It is Brighton against Wolves. It's tough to glam this one up, I think. Wolves played... hundred. He, he, oh. he thinks he can glam it up. Oh. Bosher and Hipster Corner. You, yeah. Go on, then. <laughs> no, so, I just so, think it's... I'm, I think basically any game involving Brighton this season is going to be exciting because, you know, they concede a lot of goals and they score a lot of goals. They've got Joao Pedro. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, yeah, he's just an absolute penalty merchant, though. But apart from that... He's a wonderful yeah, he's player. 
I would have thought he'll be, playing, good, he'll be play, playing Champions League football in yeah, maybe maybe next season. Do you think they'll be able to hold on to him? I don't, it's an interesting one because some of the players that have been bought from Brighton haven't necessarily worked at their you know next club. So I think maybe teams might take a step back and you know assess the player after you know having played in the Premier League for a little bit longer. Um, yeah, I, think I think you're giving some clubs far too much credit for being sensible. They'll see Jao Pedro <laughs> yeah. scoring and just sign him regardless. I don't know. I, th- I think I think I'd want to see personally him play another season at Premier League level. Yeah, I agree, especially under uh, Roberto De Zerbi. But I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to this game. I think it will be good. I think I've been really impressed by Wolves under Gary O'Neill this year. You know, they're one of the clubs we talked about. Forest. You know, they very much were like, we're not going to spend too much this summer, and that you know arguably cost them Yulen Lopetegui who was you know, a pretty good head coach by all accounts. But Gary O'Neill's come in, done a great job. Obviously, they're missing Huang, who's away with South Korea at the uh, Asian Cup. But to be honest, it's, it's his you know, strike partner, Mateus Cunha, that I've been really, really impressed with in recent weeks. I think you know, in his last seven games, Premier League games, he's got four goals and three assists. And he's kind of you know, alternated from playing as their kind of number nine, played a bit on the left. And, you know, he's a very talented player. You know, he was at RB Leipzig and... Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid. And it didn't quite work for him there. He's still only 24, but I think he's a full Brazil international. He so is a player. He's I a really good player. I if he'll be there next season. And I think, like, it was one of those things where I was watching a couple of Wolves games earlier this season. I think it was against Man United and Cunha was quite, well, you know, call it unlucky, call it poor finishing to not score. I, I, you know, in my mind, I think he hit the post or crossbar or something. And I was quite impressed with him, but I was like, okay, maybe he's lacking a little bit. But it seems... You know, almost since you know November, he's he's really come into his own. He looks a good player, and I kind of agree with Jay that you know he's he's very much a sellable asset for Wolves. You know, in the summer, and I I, th- I think it's going to be a good game. That's kind of what I'm getting at. And I like Wolves midfield. I think it's Jao Gomez and Mario Lamina. I think they've got a really great axis in this kind of three four three that Gary O'Neill has been been toying with a little bit and I, I like Wolves and I like Brighton so I, I think it's going to be goals I think their squad is incredible no one talks about how good the Wolves squad is but like you, you mentioned Huang you mentioned Cunha they've got Pablo Sarabia who is you know not 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 a terrible player Neto, as Neto's well. coming back Neto's this week coming I think back, yeah. Yeah. It, they, they've Killing got Tommy Boyle Ryan Aitnuri Nuri further back it's, there's just like so many good players in, in this squad that yeah I, I agree shame on you no, I need to justify my comment after that. I was just purely doing it positionally that it's eighth Brighton against Wolves in 11th. But it brings me on to the point that I was going to make that I think maybe Wolves, you wouldn't expect them to go on a, on a surge and become the, the best of the rest. But Brighton have got a decent run coming up. Could you see them finishing as the best of the rest outside that top five if we expect Liverpool, Man City, Aston Villa and Arsenal and Tottenham to to finish in that top five. Do we see Brighton maybe getting in a more honest position above the likes of West Ham? That's that's obviously ruling out Manchester United from pulling themselves together. But do you see Brighton as, yeah, as that side? They should be in that group for, for sure. I think this season they've struggled with not having a, a really physical player in their midfield and they do tend to be quite lightweight because of the way that Roberto De Zerbi likes to play, right? He likes to have lots of technical players. Uh, he likes to leave his fullbacks deeper to, to sort of cover. I think that's been the problem that De Zerbi has had to solve this this time around uh, with that defensive unit because they could get away with it last season and they're not getting away with it this season. Teams know how to hurt them as well. So there's, there's that level as well. So we've seen him 
tweaking things around, playing with 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 a back three rather than just having two centre backs deeper, just to try and avoid those kind of things. But I think that with with Deserbi, it's it's one of those things where you, when you consider the fact that he can't spend loads of money on on players, I think the way that you improve this system is bringing in better players in those sorts of positions. In a, a central midfielder who's both technical and physically imposing is very expensive in the market. But yeah, I think Brighton Brighton are certainly, as Luke says, they're, they're super fun to watch. They're, what they're doing is very different to what a lot of other teams in that sort of position are, are trying to do. Uh, and I think that if they go on this nice run now and, and things go well for them, then yeah, they'll definitely be crawl, crawling up the table. They'll get, they'll get ahead of Man United at least, won't they? Predictions for this game, starting uh, with this festival of football with Luke Bosher. Come on. Yeah, I'm going to go 2-2. 2-2. What a game it's going to be. Jay. 3-1 Brighton. Kunja's going to score for Wolves. Yep, okay. John. 2-0 Brighton. John. 2-0. And me, that game is going to be (laughs) 1-1. There it is. That is all for today. Really appreciate you being on once again, Jay. Enjoy Ivan Tony's return. Thank you very much. He's going to score one of those penalties, isn't he? Probably. He is probably going to score, yeah. Probably, probably. Luke, thank you very much. Are you going to a game this weekend? No, no. Uh, you know, with Chelsea not playing, yeah. I'm, I, my weekend's going to be great already. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, does yeah. that mean you can play for our Sunday League team this weekend? Uh, maybe. maybe. Okay. Go on, put him on the spot. So now yeah. if he says yes, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the fans will get on him if and he the doesn't team play. Is... Ribblesdale Rovers. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Great. And John? <laughs> Uh, what am I supposed to do here? No, it's not a prediction. I'm just saying goodbye. But, yeah, yeah. Are you playing this weekend? Worried. Are you playing? Yeah, I thought you asking me for a prediction for Ribblesdale Road. <laughs> yeah. Who have you got? Uh, FC Parthenope or something like that. Oh, they sound Ooh, good. Yeah, I'm going are. for a win for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks, guys. Thanks for being on. Io is going to be back as usual on Monday. Just a reminder, if you want to be part of The Athletic, you can now sign up for £2 or $2 a month for the first 12 months by going to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Enjoy your weekend and thanks very much for listening. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.